Hello, my name is Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica. I'm pleased to welcome you to this eight-part series of healthcare reform discussions with nationally recognized health policy experts. These interviews will discuss Medicare policy, including healthcare pricing, long-term care, and the social determinants of health. This series is part of an ongoing two-year effort by more than a dozen hospital CEOs from around the U.S. to urge Congress to take up significant health care policy reform legislation, largely by calling for the creation of a National Commission on Health Care Reform. It is our intent that these policy reforms discussed during these interviews demonstrate our desire for substantive national reform. Moreover, that these interviews help to further inform congressional members and committee staff as they work to craft legislation to improve health care delivery and financing during the next Congress. Our motivation is straightforward. Well before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were adamant that race, age, and or economic circumstances should not be defined as pre-existing conditions. Nor do we accept the premise that Americans should be resigned to live shorter lives in poorer health. We invite you to listen to or to read the transcripts of all eight interviews. If you'd like to provide comment, you can do so via the contact information noted at the conclusion of these interviews. Welcome to the second interview in this series of eight concerning federal health care policy reform. Again, I'm David Intracasso. Any discussion of health care reform must include examining health care pricing, what drives health care spending, health care prices. With me to discuss the topic is Urban Institute Fellow and former three-term MedPAC Commissioner, Dr. Robert Berenson. Dr. Berenson, welcome. Uh, pleasure to be here, David. Dr. Berenson's complete bio is posted with this interview's audio file and transcript. Briefly on background, as has been well documented, U.S. healthcare prices, moreover in commercial markets, have for decades been significantly higher than in comparative countries. In addition, U.S. healthcare markets suffer wide price heterogeneity or significant price discrepancy. Total U.S. healthcare spending, per capita spending, and spending growth are in multiples of other rich countries, despite the fact, among others, Americans do not consume more healthcare services. For example, in 2019, the U.S. spent approximately two and a half times the per capita OECD average. While there has been and will remain debate regarding how to best calculate prices or interpret price signals, there is consensus U.S. healthcare suffers a significant pricing problem. As Uwe Reinhardt and his colleagues concluded in a widely referenced 2003 article, it is, quote-unquote, the price is stupid. Among numerous other problems, high-priced health care as Dr. Wolf discussed in the preceding interview, explains our significant health disadvantage. Again, Americans suffer or bear high disease burden, resulting in our living shorter lives. So with that, Bob, as intro or background, as I just noted, U.S. healthcare has a price problem. I didn't explain what accounts for this, so that's my first question. What accounts for our pricing problem? Well, first, I want to just say that uh, while researchers and policy wonks understand that we have a pricing problem, and particularly for for hospitals, to a lesser extent for other health for health professionals, uh, public policy hasn't, in any significant way, addressed the problem. There's a lot of discussion about pharmaceutical prices and 
legislation to address it. Pharmaceuticals represent about 10% of the total health bill. Hospitals represent 45% of the total health bill, and with health professionals together, over 60% of the health bill. And and so the first thing to just understand is it deserves policy action, not just documentation of what the problem is. And why do we have such a problem is because we have, at this point, broken markets. Uh, at one time, uh, insurers and hospitals negotiated fairly equally uh, to arrive at a price for paying for the hospital services. But over the last two decades, hospitals have figured out that they could gain market leverage in those negotiations by basically merging, by becoming larger, by becoming what uh, some people call must-haves. An insurer can't go to market uh, for an, an insured product without having that hospital system in its network. It gives inordinate leverage to the hospitals uh, in negotiating their prices. And so what we've seen is that in 1996, uh, the estimate was that hospitals were getting paid about 106% of the Medicare level. And uh, we'll get back to that. But Medicare pays close to the cost of hospitals. Now, a very recent report from, from RAND shows that on average, hospitals are getting 247% of Medicare. It's just been a straight line upwards. Uh, and why? Because hospitals can do what pharmaceuticals companies can do is they can basically name their price. And so that's what the problem is. Okay, thank you. And just to uh, put a finer point on that uh, market concentration, uh, 90% of metropolitan statistical areas MSAs were highly concentrated for hospitals. Uh, this is the noted uh, Herfindahl-Hirshhorn index score and um, concentration amongst um, 58%, excuse me, of MSAs, uh, provider concentration was higher than uh, insurer concentration, and the opposite where insurer concentration is higher than hospitals, true in only 6% of MSAs, to add a bit more uh, detail there. So thank you. And, of course, uh, per your point, uh, the latest statistic I saw uh, reinforcing the fact that market share and prices go positively together is that monopoly hospitals tend to have rates 12% higher than those that are not. Um, one of the solutions, of course... and well, this I, I just need to make one other point about please. this. I mean, it's one thing to be getting 247% of, of hospital... Uh, I'm sorry, of Medicare rates... And keep in mind that Medicare and Medicaid, actually, uh, both pay about 90% of cost. It's drifted down recently. Uh, hospitals argue that, well, they have to charge more because they've got these huge shortfalls in Medicare and Medicaid. Well, if you do the math, and this is really junior high school algebra, uh, you can figure out that to be made whole, if they're getting 90% of their costs from Medicare and Medicaid, they will, should be getting 140 to 150% of Medicare uh, to make up for those shortfalls based on the, the payer mix percentages. They are getting dramatically more than that. And what does that result in? Incredible profits being made by not-for-profit, supposedly not-for-profit hospital systems. You know, the, large, the large majority of hospitals are, are not-for-profit. Um, 
So during COVID, during the second quarter, many hospitals uh, had markedly reduced revenues in the tens of millions of dollars. But many of these systems have literally billions of dollars. There's one system, which uh, I won't name today, has $20 billion sitting in marketable securities. And yet uh, they were getting a federal bailout for for the shortfall they had in one quarter. So these high prices are not providing medical care for anybody. They are not primarily going to capital expansion and developing new new treatment protocols or, or new facilities. They are paying generous salaries, high staffing, and most of it or much of it is sitting just in the stock market. And so that's what I think we need to understand. Okay, so thank you again. So uh, the more possibly traditional discussion relative to addressing market failure is to stimulate competition. So let's spend a moment on that. And in fact, that was largely this current administration's approach uh, that they outlined in some detail in their late 2018 report, Reforming America's Healthcare System Through Choice and uh, Competition. Most of that, of course, was their effort uh, to try to improve price transparency. What's your sense of our ability to stimulate uh, competition in a market that, as I noted, and you noted as well, is already highly concentrated? Well, yeah, there there are some marginal uh, policies that can help. There are still some hospital mergers that the uh, antitrust authorities could try to prevent. Some of the major problems right now we're seeing is what's called cross-market mergers, where hospitals in different uh, geographic areas, often uh, nearby, but in different uh, uh, market areas, uh, merge and develop sort of uh, large system power, even though they may not uh, violate antitrust rules in a local market. They have market power because of their, their consolidated impact on any insurer or any employer's uh, uh, employees. Uh, so there's some things that can be done to try to make uh, sort of traditional markets work better. But the basic question I'd ask is who wants to come into markets with new hospitals? It's one thing to come in with a new insurance company. There's not a lot of bricks and mortar to actually try to come in with a new hospital system means you need to create a provider network. And the incumbent hospitals have a huge advantage. It is very hard for a new insurer to come in and develop a uh, network without that must-have hospital that has market power. So I don't think we're going to be creating um, real markets the way most U.S. Uh, economists think about uh, price competition. And one other thing I'd say here is that the OECD countries, including most of the European countries, actually have significant market competition and broad choice of providers for individuals, and they do it by administered pricing. If the prices are, are limited um, and paid by government, essentially, or if not paid by government, but the prices are determined by government, there actually is good competition over quality and service and innovation. And uh, in the context of the U.S., it would uh, increase the likelihood of having insurer competition as well. 
so I think um, while there might be a role for the traditional antitrust and transparency and those kinds of things to promote more market competition, I think we are at a point when we have to take very seriously uh, the opportunity to have government influence or even directives on on the prices that uh, hospitals and to a lesser extent physicians uh, get to charge. And that, I'm arguing, actually promotes competition over the kinds of things that uh, patients and consumers really care about is the quality of care. Yeah, so to say a, a word or two further about competition, your comment was uh, the textbook argument, and that's barrier to entry. Uh, in highly consolidated markets, it's a high barrier uh, to entry. There are other, of course, price transparency, as we're well aware, under the current administration, again, although the research on that is not that promising. Uh, most people shop based on convenience versus price. There's, of course, opportunities for benefit design, risk-based contracts, uh, but these are all seen as limited and relative to antitrust. Uh, the phrase is, it's very difficult under antitrust laws to, as they would say, put the toothpaste back into the tube. Uh, and then you did note limiting anti-competitive contracting, uh, all or nothing, and other types of uh, uh, contracting uh, practices. Let's go to administrative uh, pricing, and that gets to uh, rate setting and regulatory um, oversight of pricing. There are any number of ways this is done. Uh, capitation, reference pricing, price caps, limiting price growth, global payer, all payer, uh, etc. Um, what one or two of these do you think would be most appropriate for our our market or or the best approach? Well, the first thing to say is you, you combine two different kinds of uh, approaches. One is new payment incentives, new payment models, and then uh, new ways of putting limits on the price. Um, I don't believe new payment models necessarily have much to do about the prices. You could say pay by capitation, but a, uh, a provider with market power is going to get a very high capitation rate. Um, and that actually does happen. Cap, uh, California has had capitated medical groups for many years, and they, if they have a monopoly in an area, get high capitation rates. So having new payment models, which is important to discuss, and you'll be doing that, I believe, with Mike McWilliams, yes. um, to me doesn't really address the pricing issue. So what we are left with is essentially do we want to uh, sort of focus on the outliers, the hospitals that are that almost everybody would agree are extracting monopoly profits. Um, if the average is 247 percent, there are hospital systems that are getting 300, 350, 400 percent of Medicare. Uh, North Carolina actually published data that showed that a medical group in in North Carolina, was getting 996% of Medicare. Um, do you want to just do that? And there's a growing consensus amongst even very pro-market economists that at some point you have to put some limits on, on those kinds of extremes. And that I think we could do, and it's relatively easy to do that, and that, that is what some would recommend. 
But you can go all the way to what a Maryland system has had for 35-plus years, which is actually setting the actual rates that uh, all hospitals are getting, not just uh, putting limits on the the outliers, but setting the rates. And uh, they've actually moved to uh, a system of hospital budgets uh, there are there are both conceptual and theoretical concern. I'm sorry, conceptual and uh, and practical concerns about uh, trying to do this on a national basis. Maryland's been doing it, and most people are leery of the kind of uh, infrastructure uh, that would be required for every state to move to that kind of system. Uh, so there are some intermediate approaches that could be taken, uh, in addition to putting an upper limit on what negotiated prices could be. Uh, there was a proposal from the governor of Massachusetts to basically tier the hospitals based on their baseline uh, per capita, I mean, their baseline prices for, for comparable procedures. And the ones that are at the high level of uh, priciness uh, would get uh, limited or no increases uh, in their rates. It, it's a regulatory model, but it doesn't require having to actually interfere with uh, all the established rates that exist in the system. It just limits the updates. And over many years, you would start narrow. You would be narrowing the differentials between what are called the haves and the have-nots. And that is a point I'd want to emphasize. Uh, we do have a cost problem generated by the must-have monopoly hospitals, but we have a lot of hospitals, usually not big systems, maybe uh, safety net hospitals, that do not have lots of money sitting in reserves, and and they are exposed and in some cases having to to actually shut down because uh, they have no leverage in their negotiations. So one could develop a system in which there's a floor, uh, some protection for those hospitals, and then limited updates for those who have had inordinate market power over many years. Uh, thank you. So per your comment about Maryland all-payer, the state likes to argue that, um, per your earlier point about how regulation can actually drive or stimulate competition, or that rate setting is not anti-competitive, they like to point out that Blue Cross's market share dropped uh, over the years because what they found is providers and insurers compete on other dimensions, including, of course, uh, quality. Um, you did mention Massachusetts, and there are any number of states. So let's go there. Um, you know, Rhode Island, we know North Carolina, Washington now has started with a public option. Between and amongst the states that have moved on rate regulation, uh, amongst these, what do you find are uh, the most promising? Well, Oregon is another state that's been pretty assertive. I mean, that some states, including Montana, which you wouldn't think of in this area, are simply starting by putting uh, limits, attempting to put limits anyway, on what the public employees' plans would pay. There, the states mm -hmm. have direct responsibility for paying for government employees, which usually includes uh, teachers and retiree, public, former public employees who are now have retirement plans. 
uh, they would put limits, and Oregon has a specific plan to then expand that to non-public employees to put limits um, uh, that over time would be sort of ratcheted down. Um, so I think that that does have uh, some practical uh, appeal. Uh, I, I think you could combine that with the Massachusetts uh, proposal, uh, which did not go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the points I would make there is that sometimes systems that have market power also have political power. And so it is possible that uh, if the market isn't restraining their prices, they have the ability to prevent the legislature from restraining their prices. But assuming that there was the will, the political will to do it, uh, the idea of putting an upper limit on prices and then having tiering the hospital so they get different update factors, uh, which doesn't destroy a system. I mean, there have been some proposals, for example, very aggressive proposals to simply say, next year we're going to pay 120% of Medicare. Uh, when If you've got a system that's getting 250 or 300% of Medicare, and say next year you're going to get 120% of Medicare and all of your commercial products or your your commercially insured patients that you're seeing, it would cause tremendous disruption, uh, unemployment. They would take many service lines out, of, out and you can't really practically do that. Uh, that. That would be one of the problems of moving right away to a Medicare for all approach. Uh, you have to give the system some time to adjust to the new reality that we're asking them to significantly cut back the excesses in their systems. So by giving differential updates, including 0% updates for for systems that have had market power for years and have put away a lot of money in, in, uh, that they could be using for the uh, shortfalls if they're not getting anything beyond the, they're not even getting inflation uh, over time they would come more into line so I think that would be the kind of an approach um, that could be adopted uh, one other thing to say I think it's important to say is there were you know two three decades ago there were there were a number of states that actually had all payer rate setting systems and Maryland is the only one that still survives there are practical realities to trying to do this, uh, let's say at the state level. Uh, there's the potential problem of regulatory capture, where the regulated entities actually have in, uh, inordinate the influence over uh, the government rate-setting process. And you can have what's called regulatory failure, where, uh, which was seen in New York and, and elsewhere, uh, which it became so complex that nobody could understand what the, with lots of exceptions for this kind of hospital or that kind of hospital. That is the uh, downside of rate regulation is if it's too complicated and if it's subject to capture by the regulated uh, entities, it could fail. So uh, that does suggest um, starting with more limited objectives And then over time, uh, as you learn how to do it well, uh, you start bringing those prices down and start more aggressively narrowing the differentials that have been created over the years between the haves and the have-nots. Yes, thank you again. 
as you noted, Montana, they it's reference pricing. Uh, so they peg their health plan hospital rates to Medicare reimbursement. Uh, North Carolina has discussed this. Rhode Island has an interesting approach. Um, an insurer cannot accept a hospital contract if the price increases in excess of CPI plus 1%. Um, and then there are uh, uh, other states, including uh, several um, that are actually going a, a somewhat different way, but they're creating, uh, trying to create established uh, Medicaid buy-in programs. There is one state, of course, Washington, uh, that has now instituted a public option, and their formula is rates cannot exceed 168% of Medicare, and they also have a floor uh, for primary care uh, reimbursement. Did now, you- that's all correct, but I just point out that in Washington, as well as in North Carolina, the hospitals really push back in a fairly significant way. And uh, the, the ability to actually come up with a reasonable rate is challenging. The hospitals still do have uh, some clout and will say that uh, there will be tremendous disruption. So um, so there, there really needs to be the political will uh, at the state level to actually go ahead. North Carolina actually could not implement rates that hospitals would accept. Uh, with their public employee plans. And my understanding is that Washington State, uh, the rate is much higher than the original uh, proposers had in mind. Uh, <laughs> but again, I think it's better to start somewhere. And then over time, as, as, the, as it becomes documented that that quality does not suffer uh, because hospitals have tremendous excess uh, reserves, um, uh, then, then you can ratchet down. Thank you. Since I did mention the public option, and regardless of who's um, in the majority in the Senate, obviously this was a part of Vice President Biden's campaign platform. Uh, this, of course, was discussed in '09 relative to the Affordable Care Act. It was excluded. Um, he has some variations on the idea, including, uh, although not explained, uh, auto-enrollment, uh, etc., it is interesting. We, we already have a public option, uh, in a sense, and, and however quasi-public, and that's a Medicare Advantage, where uh, Medicare Advantage plans, uh, their rates are extremely, are very close or comparable to Medicare, traditional Medicare. What's your overall general assessment, leaving politics aside, of, of a public option? Uh, well, uh, Medicare Advantage, I use as the example, the, the primary example of where uh, rate regulation and competition are not only compatible but complementary. It is only, I mean, as I said earlier, uh, uh, insurers are paying uh, well over 200% to hospitals for, for care, um, and yet in Medicare Advantage, they pay pretty much the Medicare rate, and the reason they pay the Medicare rate is that there's a simple provision in the Medicare statute that says that uh, uh, hospitals or any other providers are not allowed to balance bill patients beyond the Medicare allowed charges, essentially the the Medicare payment bubble. Um, So that completely changes the negotiating leverage between the providers and the insurers 
You can either be in network at Medicare levels or you can be out of network at Medicare levels. You can't be out of network at 247% of Medicare. Um, and so that uh, is a game changer, and we actually have reasonably good competition within Medicare Advantage, not as much as we should have, but in most markets there there are dozens of plans. There are many fewer different insurance companies, but uh, there is reasonable competition, and so it is, it's an example. Uh, but in the interviewing that I've done as to try to understand why why this difference? Why do private insurers accept, uh, or why do hospitals accept the Medicare levels for Medicare Advantage, but not for commercial? Um, it is because there's still a large percentage of their revenues are coming from commercial. So they are able to make up those Medicare Advantage rates at Medicare levels with the ever-increasing rates being charged to the commercial insurers. The whole system uh, if there was not a safety valve, I guess is what I'm saying, uh, and everybody was getting paid Medicare rates, then you would have that situation where, where somehow, unless it was phased in uh, over many years, you would have significant disruption in the system. Um, so it is one thing to say that uh, for marginal revenues, you're going to use the Medicare rates. It's completely different to say that all payments should be at Medicare level. Yes, I, this entire conversation is really about, as an ec- economist would term, economic rents. And that, uh, as in other industries and in mature economies, healthcare in the U.S. is no different. It has a massive and some economic rent problem. The upside relative to, um, your comments, Bob, is that, uh, MA plans avoid for their, um, beneficiaries the problem we haven't been able to solve for the last two years, and that is surprise billing. Um, and surprise billing, of course, is probably considered to be one of the most egregious examples of, of the economic rent issue. Um, let me ask you about MA. There's been some, not much, but some discussion of expanding Medicare Advantage markets. So, for example, the most um, commonly or frequently discussed is allowing Medicare Advantage plans uh, to participate in state marketplaces. What, what's your sense of that? Well, um, I think that hospitals would uh, strongly object if, if that means they get to pay Medicare rates. In other words, uh, the, the, the crucial policy decision on that one would be whether whether the current prohibition on balanced billing, which I suggested occurs in Medicare and Medicare Advantage, uh, would be extended to Medicare Advantage in in the marketplaces. Without that provision... They're essentially the same as a com- commercial insurer, and the hospitals would have market power, and the prices right. would immediately go up to the commercial towards the commercial rates. They wouldn't function the way a Medicare Advantage plan functions with that protection uh, that they have against the, the hospitals uh, wanting to be out of network. So I don't think that's, I mean, I, 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 that, that one doesn't make any sense. I don't think there would be a real prospect that, um, uh, I mean, basically all commercial insurance will become Medicare Advantage if that happened, and the hospitals have enough clout to prevent that from happening. Okay, my, my last question is, the, the theory is with more affordable coverage, you can expand coverage, which means you have 
crudely phrased, more paying customers. Um, and, for example, if um, federal regulation produced scorable savings, then those savings could be uh, used to shore up um, some markets, particularly mentioned uh, in the context here of rural hospitals um, who are financially suffering if, if for no other reason than their occupancy rates are half or less on average um, bed days than uh, metro hospitals. So to what extent does expanded coverage uh, make these uh, options more palatable? Um, you make it up with volume? Well, there's no question that a, a, a patient who has even uh, insure, insurance paying 90% of cost is better than uh, a patient who has no insurer. Uh, there's clearly a lot of bad debt from people who, because people simply can't pay mm-hmm. when they're charged directly. Uh, but, um, uh, so, I, I mean, I think for lots of reasons, we need to move towards 100% coverage, mostly uh, reasons of health and well-being. Everybody deserves to have health insurance. It would help somewhat. Um, the hospital situation, the hospitals really do not want to have a system where most patients are getting paid Medicaid or Medicare rates because uh, they've gotten accustomed to um, to the generosity of commercial insurance payments. <laughs> uh, again, I think we need to move away from that generosity, but it can't be done like in a year. It has to be done phased in over many years so that uh, hospitals understand and can make adjustments. Um, uh, we also need to um, do a much better job of, of, of correcting the distortions in payment. It's well known and well documented that mental health services are underpaid to hospitals, and so hospitals frequently uh, eliminate that service or have limited uh, 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 behavioral health uh, coverage, whereas surgical services are overly well paid, and that's what hospitals invest in. Uh, we need to correct those distortions. One of the, the areas that I'm working in right now is envisioning a world in which Medicare is used as the reference point, um, and and hospitals are paid some percentage above Medicare. We got to correct the distortions in the payment in Medicare, um, not only for hospitals but for physicians and to some extent even for other providers like home health agencies and and skilled nursing facilities, etc. Uh, we have distortions that reward certain kinds of care and penalize other kinds of care, and that results in shortages. And I'm aware, actually, uh, somebody who who I know had spent seven days in an emergency room. Uh, because he now has dementia, he needs to be placed in a special facility that can can treat his uh, his behavioral problems with dementia, and there were none in, none available in the state of North Carolina. Um, so he spent uh, six days in a little room in a hospital emergency room. Um, so we've got to correct, and that was not primarily a COVID problem. That was uh, because the hospital was filled with COVID patients. They simply uh, do not, that hospital did not invest in sufficient beds for geriatric psychiatry. 
which is going to be a growing problem. And there were very few facilities in the state. So we have lots to do to get the prices uh, uh, in better relationship to the underlying costs to try to correct for those kinds of, uh, of distortions in price, which create distortions in care delivery. Um, and so Medicare needs to actually get that improved uh, when it wants to be or when it is being held out to be the reference point for paying all, all health care. Okay, thank you, Bob. We're at our we're at our time, so I, I do appreciate this overview of our pricing problem. Uh, bottom line again is a better grip on rate setting relative to uh, the commercial market. So with that, Bob, thank you very much. Yeah, let me just finish and just Please. repeat what I said er- earlier: is that the assumption that competition and rate setting are are have nothing to do with each other or incompatible is wrong. And the sooner we understand that markets actually can work better in the context of, of, of administered pricing, rate setting, uh, breaking down the myth that uh, these, these, this use of, of government pricing is interferes with markets, it needs to be broken down. Uh, they actually would promote more competition and better markets. And if we had time, we could discuss how that works in numerous states in, or countries in Europe. So thank you. Right. Thank you again, Bob. All right. Bye-bye.